Hello, everybody. <laughs> I'm hoping you can hear and, uh, and, and see us. We've had a fantastic day with the technology, and I can't, I can't begin to tell you how much I've enjoyed all of that. Right, OK, so let's, let's make a start then. Um, I, want to, I want to talk a little bit about how people felt in the past. And that's why I've called this, why did people fear the Victorian workhouse, rather than, rather than some general conversation about how does the poor law work. What I wanted to do was talk a little bit about how, how people felt about the Victorian workhouse and why did they fear it. And I kind of want to say, as part of this, there is, a, there is something of a pre-question to all that, uh, and that is, did people fear the Victorian workhouse, which obviously is a talk in itself, but just so that we get some kind of idea. Um, this is a, a newspaper cutting from from London, and it's a couple who've committed suicide rather than going to the workhouse. And they, they leave a, a note saying that we've poisoned ourselves to, so as to escape the workhouse, and we've got no money, we've got nothing to make any money from, we owe two weeks' rent, may God forgive us. Um, I've got a second, this is a, that's a London case, it's actually reported in, in a Huddersfield newspaper, uh, but this is a, uh, another case, this is from Reith in North Yorkshire, uh, and it's a, a, a report or a letter from somebody called Lionel Simpson from Reith. And he's talking about a man called Thomas Simpson. No relation, he's an outdoor pauper. Uh, and he, he talks about him, he's 69 years old, he's unable to labour, he was a miner, he was a lead miner, which was one of the, the key occupations in, in, in that area at the time. But it talks about him, he's now fallen on hard times. Um, and it talks about him, he, he won't go into the workhouse they're not giving him a great deal of out relief. Um, and he it says, I'd, I'd rather die than go into the workhouse. And the unfortunate thing um, for this individual is that he does, he, he dies rather than go into the, the, the workhouse. And I could give a number of examples of these kind of things. I've seen lots and lots of these things um, in, the, uh, in the archive. So, I, we know that people did fear the workhouse. There was a lot of trepidation about the workhouse system. And certainly, and this is a, a contemporary picture from the time, those commentators who were against the new poor law, the Victorian workhouse system, uh, really condemned this. This little picture here, it kind of shows you uh, people of a, a kind of a normal size going up these stairs, going into the workhouse mill where they're ground down uh, as individuals. And it was a common view of the Victorian workhouse system in the 1830s and the 1840s. Now, if we think about that period, that, that little slide you've just seen a minute ago, that was published in the 1830s. And it can sound a long time ago, 180 years can sound a long time ago. When you talk about it in generational terms, it's not. You're going back, for some people, maybe four generations, five generations, six generations tops. So it's quite near to us, is the Victorian workhouse system. It's, it's, quite, uh, it's quite close by us. And the other thing to bear in mind is it's not just that it's, it's near to us. What I'm going to do today is I'm talking about England and Wales. Scotland and Ireland have their own poor law systems. Now, I'm not going to touch on those. The, the history is different. The archive that's created is 
is very different. So I'm going to be talking about um, England and Wales. Right, let's get to the meat of this then. How did the pool law system operate? And what is it that changed then that made people fear the system so much? The slide you've got in front of you now, think of it as being in thirds. So the top third is the introduction of the old poor law, the Elizabethan poor law. And what the state did in the late Elizabethan period, it said that there are certain classes of people for whom the state agrees should get some relief, some assistance. So the impotent poor, those who couldn't labour, the young, those who were in need of training or education, they also would receive some form of relief. Um, things like pauper, pauper education, uh, pauper apprenticeships. The third group is the organisation of work for the able-bodied, and that was by far the most difficult one for the state to come to terms with. What do we do with people who can work, but for whatever reason, they're not working? But they did agree that that class of, of people should get relief in the form of organised work in the Elizabethan period. What they then said is, well, if we're, going to, if we're going to allow for this relief across the whole of England and Wales, how is that going to be managed? And which local government unit is going to manage that? And it's the vestry. The vestry was given the responsibility of managing at a local level how poverty uh, would, be, would be managed, would be administered. And so... You have the vestry with the church warden, the parish constable. The incumbent was usually the chair, the local vicar or the local, uh, local rector. The surveyor of highways and added to those officers are now the overseer of the poor. So you have, that's your local government unit, if you like, who's responsible for delivering the old poor law. The final third of that slide tells you a little bit about how they operated. The way in which money was raised for the poor was, was quite standardised. It was, a, it was a, a local land rate. So that's how money came in. It depended on how much land you held and of what value that land was. And from there, an amount of money would be, would be taken from you in a local land tax. How the vastry spent money, though, differed from parish to parish and over time. So you'll see down on this slide here, some parishes would perhaps provide uh, rent or they would provide parish houses in which to house the poor. Other parishes would provide money doles. Others would provide in-kind relief, like clothes or materials or foodstuffs. Uh, others would still provide the, the apprenticeship system, the parish apprentice monies. Others would, would buy parish materials to be worked up by those in receipt of relief and then sell that on the open market. So what I want you to get from this is, is that the way that money was raised is a standardised way of, of, of raising the money. But how they spent it, the local vestry had lots and lots of discretion. They could do this in many, many different ways. Um, however, what does happen through that, from the, sorry, what does happen from the late Elizabethan period up to the uh, early Victorian period is that the amount of money spent on relief goes up. This is the welfare bill. And that graph that you're looking at now, um, that, that graph is showing you from the 1690s how much the state feels is being spent on poor relief 
across the whole of the country and you'll see that's just going up. It goes up and up and up and up until about 1818. It drops back a little bit in the 1820s, but I wouldn't worry too much about that. Um, from a lot of farmers' perspective, um, although their, their rates, their poor rates are coming down now, the prices of agricultural produce is also coming down. So they don't really feel much of a, uh, of a relief, if you like, in the 1820s. And what you can see then is as that expenditure goes up, in a lot of the social commentators of the time, in the debates in Parliament, a lot of the conversation is, how do we stop this? How do we stop that going up? And in fact, in the little um, item at the bottom, at the bottom of the, the screen there, um, you'll see that there's an 1832 Royal Commission of Inquiry. That follows the swing rights of 1830-31. And a Royal Commission of Inquiry is set up to look at how poor relief is managed how it'll be managed in the future, as well as uh, how it's been managed in the past. And in 1834, they report, the Royal Commission reports on it, and there is a new Act of Parliament, the Poor Law Amendment Act of 1834. And that act sets down how the Victorian poor law system is going to uh, operate. And we now have, as we see on this slide, we now have a different way in which poverty is going to be managed at a local level. So if you look at the bottom there, where I've put parish A, parish B, parish C and parish D, individual parishes, instead of looking after their own poor, raising their own money, and then spending their own money with that discretion, that changes. Parishes are now being brought together into bigger local government units. They're being brought together into poor law unions. And each parish will vote for one or more people who will represent them on the board of guardians of that local pool or union. And to the side there, I've given a couple of examples. I've put in the Richmond Pool or Union down in Surrey, and I've put the Southall Pool or Union in Nottinghamshire. And you can see that some of them are quite small. There's maybe only a handful of parishes, but others can be quite big, and you can have 40, 50 or 60 parishes now brought together. Now, those pool or unions are to some degree under the supervision or guidance of the pool or commission that was set up in London. And if you look in that top box where I've, I've tried to distill, if I can, the kind of main parts of that report of 1834 that leads into the Act, the Pool Law Amendment Act. And you can see here that outdoor relief was, was to continue for the aged and the infirm, but it would be abolished for the able-bodied. What's going to happen now is that they are going to be offered the house. They're going to be offered the workhouse. The conditions in the workhouse were to be less eligible than that of the lowest paid labourer. In other words, the standard of living of those in the workhouse was to be decidedly lower than those outside of the workhouse. And the idea was to make the workhouse this feared institution of last resort. They're going to establish a central poor law commission with three commissioners and that would be, over, that would be to oversee the poor law and to try to bring about national uniformity. So it doesn't really matter where in England and Wales you are, the standard of living inside the workhouse for you and the standard of relief that you received, it shouldn't matter whether you're in Truro or Berwick-upon-Tweed, 
whether you're uh, in Montgomeryshire, it really shouldn't matter. The level should be the same. And then, as I said earlier, the parishes were to be joined together. So what you've got is a completely different system of relief. The parochial system, to some degree, is, is being broken up. And this larger government unit is now responsible for relief. The workhouse is to be the main way in which uh, able-bodied individuals are to, receive, are to receive relief. Now, in fact, what happens, the whole of the period, the whole of that Victorian period, the vast majority of people in receipt of relief get that relief outdoor. But that threat, if you like, for the able-bodied is there all the way through the period that we're going to be, going to be talking about. So why did people fear it? We've had a look at a couple of slides earlier on of people who died rather than, than going to the workhouse. This is just a, a, a randomised view of a, of a few workhouse buildings. And when I look at this, what I feel is it's, it's, they're quite prison looking. They, they don't look welcoming institutions. And in fact, they were designed not to be. They were designed not to be welcoming. They were designed to make sure that if you were making your way there to, uh, to, to enter the workhouse, you and your family, it was meant to overawe you, to make you feel quite uh, the insignificant individual ranged against this national system um, with its system of workhouses. Um, and you'll see, uh, if you look at the one on the left-hand side there, and you'll see a person walking outside, and you can see that they've got windows in the walls there, but people who are outside can't see in, they're so high. And of course, those on the inside, they can't see out. So there's a, that, 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 that aura of, of isolation uh, at work within the, within the workhouse system. They are very, very much an unwelcoming group of, of buildings. This is a, a contemporary picture from the 1830s. And in it, what we see is a whole host of fears that the poor and working class people of early Victorian England and Wales would undoubtedly have, have thought about during their, their time. There's a number of different pictures there within that. And you'll see that people are being hung from the uh, roof rafters. There are people chained against the wall. There are people with shaved heads. The master is at the, at the doorway there, stopping other people coming in. In the foreground, you've got people beating hemp and you've got people uh, picking oakum. There's a pauper being beaten by a man with a, with a whip. On your right-hand side, you'll see two figures. One of them um, has got uh, a couple of pails over a, a piece of wood that's across his shoulder. And that supposedly uh, meat from paupers for pies. And behind that individual is a man who's got a cart, and in that cart are pauper bodies that are going to be taken off for dissection to the surgeons. And what's fascinating about that picture is that some of those things were meant to happen under the new poor law, and some of those things were not things that were, were ever to happen under the new poor law. But they're all pushed together uh, in there. So it was never government policy, for example, to, uh, to, to hang you from the, from the rafters or to chain you to the wall um, or for, 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 the, for paupers to end up inside you know, pies or things like that. 
but you were expected to work and you could be refused as the master is doing there you could be refused relief and entry to the workhouse and for unclaimed bodies the body parts the bodies and the body parts could be sent to the surgeons um, for dissection so there's a number of fears if you like that are put together in a picture like that but in the 1830s these are the kind of things the kind of things that were discussed uh, by people in relation to why would you not want to go into the workhouse what are the kind of things that might happen to me and to my family now it's certainly the case that a workhouse wasn't simply somewhere that you slept and it's not only somewhere that you would work you'd be set to work by the by the authorities there there was also uh, an understanding that it could be a place where punishments were meted out to the inmates what you're looking at is a, a, a page from the first annual report of the Poor Law Commission. This is from 1836. And they're talking there about what kind of behaviours a person could be punished for if the pauper was deemed to be refractory. Then you could end up with your diet being reduced. You could end up being put into a, a dark cell. Uh, by, by yourself for a number of hours, it might be four hours, six hours, it might be, be 12 hours. So the workhouse could be a place of punishment as well as anything else and people were, uh, were aware of that. And in fact, I, I looked through the first 10 or 20 of these annual reports and in the seventh report, it does talk about I'll give you a quote from this. In consequence of some recent instances of excessive or improper punishments inflicted by masters of workhouses upon some of the pauper inmates, what the Poor Law Commission now do is they set up a way of recording the punishments of paupers in workhouses. And it gives the form in which that information is to be collected. So you know, what, what, is it, what is it that somebody did? When did they do it? What punishments were they to receive? When did they receive that punishment? So this information from 1841 is collected for each workhouse, for each poor law union workhouse. Um, and that would have been recorded in, in this book here. This is a workhouse punishment book. I've looked at a couple of these um, and they are very formulaic. They're pre-printed. So the same information is, is in all of these. The survival rate for this kind of record, which is a fascinating view on the way in which the workhouse maintained discipline, um, the, the survival rate is quite poor. They, they're held in county record offices, so it's not a record that the National Archives hold. They're held in county record offices. And so if you're, if you're, if you're wanting to get into some of this kind of data, I'd always contact the county record office first and make sure it survives for, for those. What is it that people might fear? What, what is it then? Well, they might, they might feel shamed. They might fear being separated from loved ones and, and family. The conditions in the workhouse, things like the, the kind of clothes that you might be made to wear, or the kind of food, or the amounts of food that you might be given in there. The general conditions in the, the, the workhouse. You might fear being refused relief before you make that application. There might be violence or non-violent treatment at the hands of union officers. It might be intimidation by other paupers. 
If you imagine you're in an institution where there's not a lot of staff, but there's quite a, a lot of other inmates, you might feel that once you're in, you can't, you can't get out. You might feel a lack of medical care, and you might feel a lack of independence. And to be honest, when you start to sit down and think about the kind of things that might happen in a, in a, in a Victorian workhouse, there's a, there are a number of things that people might be afraid of. So let's have a look at some accounts by paupers about their experiences in the Victorian workhouse. And the set of records I'm going to show you where I've got these from is from a set of records that we hold here at the National Archives. The series is MH12 and it's called Pool or Union Correspondence. Now it's a big set of records. There's, there's almost 17,000 volumes and I did a little bit of calculations. It's 10 million folios. 21 million pages. If there's 200 words on every page, it's about 4.3 billion words. It's a, it's a huge archive of the Victorian poor. There is a guide to these records, um, which the British Association for Local History published a couple of years ago. Uh, and it's in our, it's in our shop. Um, so if you wanted to kind of follow a lot of this stuff up, there is actually a guide that you can, you can get hold of. But let's have a look at some of the material then that you can glean from this correspondence about the things that I've been talking about. This is 1837 and we're in Kidderminster and it's a set of letters and newspaper cuttings and it's about a meeting that was held in January in 1837 uh, and it talks there about the new poor law and the poor law commission. Uh, and about it being cruel and oppressive to the working classes. And in the meeting, one of the resolutions was that the new law was unjust in principle, oppressive in practice, and contrary to the laws of God. And I think that last part is, um, and there's a, there's a number of instances where you see this uh, on demonstrations against the new poor law. One of the conditions within the workhouse is that families are divided so the wife would go one way, the husband would go another. And it's that dividing of husband and wife, which is quite often tagged as being against the, the laws of God, that who, who God has brought together. Let no man put under kind of thing. So the new poor law comes under attack, particularly in the manufacturing districts in the uh, Midlands and in the North. But not only there, there's, there's quite a lot of evidence about the way in which it was criticised and resisted um, in the more rural uh, districts and in the south. So straight away people are identifying this law as something which is cruel, something which is quite fearful. Um, this is a sticking in Kidderminster. This is a letter from a man called William Passy and he's complaining on behalf of a man called Benjamin Hughes and he's saying he's been really badly treated by the local authorities. He's 72 years old, he's a, he's a poor man He's not able to, to work for his livelihood. Uh, but it talks about him being ill. He's ill, he can't get enough money to get by on. And he talks about how this man, he's kind of passed from pillar to post. He's told he's got to go from here to somewhere else to make a claim. Uh, he, he'd only got a small amount of foodstuffs uh, in the house. Relief was refused him. 
And he talks here towards the end of that first paragraph. He was told by the relieving officer that he ought to go to his original parish of Ludlow, 22 miles away, to claim relief. And since then, says uh, Passy, his face, legs and other parts of his body have begun to swell and he's in an alarming state of deterioration. So here we have one of the fears that were in that picture I showed you earlier, that refusal of relief, that refusal of relief. This is a, not an uncommon way that, that paupers complained. This is an anonymous letter uh, and it's sent to the Poor Law Board in London asking for a, an inspector to be sent up because of the state of the food. And it says, you know, can, can somebody be sent up here to check the food? Um, nobody can eat it. There is no remedy for it at the union. And the writer signs off by saying, uh, that I hope people will come up and, and look after the poor people that have to live upon such rubbish. And in fact, I've seen numerous letters about the kind of foodstuffs and the amount of foodstuffs um, that people feel they've been left uh, to eat. This is a similar kind of letter in some ways. It's not an anonymous one. It does talk about the amount of food and the kind of food that they're given to eat. But this is from a man called William Chance and other paupers. It's a petition. So a number of people have signed this. Um, but he not just complains about the food, the amount of it, and that it's not fit to eat, but they also say we have to labour very hard at the mill. We don't, we don't eat enough. We don't get given enough to eat to maintain our constitution. And they also talk about being able to see their wives and their their family, they talk about the lack of fire, that it's cold, that they sleep on, on damp beds. And you can see how, if this is the experience of individuals in the workhouse, this is then the, the experience that's, that's passed on, if you like, orally, uh, when, people, when people leave the workhouse. This is a, a letter from one of the ratepayers, uh, Mr Brown in Bethnal Green. Uh, and he talks here... We were talking earlier about foodstuffs and the kind of general conditions. Moved on a little bit here into accusations of violence. So what Brown is saying is uh, that one of the aged inmates has told him about the workhouse master, who he describes as a most cruel man. And he gives an account of Sarah Healy, who's a young girl, about 15, who's in the workhouse, and that she'd done something to annoy the workhouse master. Um, and he dragged her into the office and shut the door. Uh, and the, the letter then states, he beat her most cruelly and the cries of the poor girl was heard all over the house. And that another inmate tried to intervene, kind of put the head round the corner and implored, you know, can you, can you stop, can you stop what you're doing? Uh, but she was then driven away and the beating uh, began again. Um, I think we're staying, this is, this is, this is a, an investigation then that was done into that case. Uh, I'll not go through all of this, but if we just go to the very, very end here, uh, where they conclude the case against the master is not substantiated. It must have been extremely difficult to be in a position where you have very little power in the workhouse to make a claim against somebody who, who has a lot. It's just a source like any other and it needs to be interrogated. But this kind of account uh, comes up uh, relatively regular within some of the, the union's correspondence. This is... Uh, Again, Bethnal Green, and this is from a man called Henry Jones. And he says, you know, I've seen better days. I've, I've fallen into decay uh, in mind and body. I've buried five children. I'm looking after four more and my aged mother. He makes an, uh, an application for relief and he says, I was struck twice 
by the relieving officer uh, and then kicked. At the time, the relieving officer was in a, a state of intoxication. So these aren't, they're not isolated cases. There's, there's lots of accounts about this. I hope one of the things that you've picked up around this as well is the number of paupers who write. The, the, the poor are often missing from accounts about the way the poor law system works. And that's because getting hold of their letters is, is, is quite difficult. Although within the MH12 series, there's, there's substantial numbers um, of letters in there. This is a, a letter from a man in Poplar Workhouse. And he talks about the way that the sick and afflicted are badly treated in there. And he talks about three inmates given charge of the uh, sick ward, which I don't think is unusual. Quite often paupers are brought in, if you like, to look after the sick within the, the workhouses. But he talks about how they're not paid and they take every opportunity for robbing inmates uh, in the sick wards. And you can see at the end there, he asks that his name is not given to those in authority because by, by reporting what is happening, he would become a marked man. It's a bit like the whistleblower position that we uh, think about today. One of the fears that people did have about the workout system is the fear of, if I go in, will I be able to get out? So this is a, a man called James Archer, and he's a, a silk weaver, a broad silk weaver. Uh, he's unemployed. He sought to get out relief um, but they've said, no, now we've, we've given some in the past. Now they're saying you've got to go into the workhouse. And he's saying, well, if I go into the workhouse, I have to show my destitution. I've sold some of my tools. I'll have to sell all of them. And that means that when the economy picks up, I'm not going to be in a position to be able to take advantage of that. I'll be in the workhouse. My tools will have gone. How can I get out? So he says, can you, the, the poor law board, could you write to the Bethnal Green Guardians saying that that's not to happen. He says they would not allow me to be perpetually pauperised and he feels that's what will happen to him if he uh, is destitute and enters the, the workhouse. What I would say is that you do come across instances where the Guardians look, they look to try to make the condition a little easier than sometimes the centre might want it to be. This is, these are two letters and they, they're both doing the same thing. They're, 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 they're from the local authorities, they're from the poor law guardians, and they're complaining um, that the rules say that uh, every so often, every week or every month, we have to put a poster up giving the names of those who are receiving relief so that everybody can see who the paupers are in the locality. And this one uh, on the, on the left-hand side is from, from Tynemouth in the 1860s. The one on the right-hand side um, is from Clutton in Somerset. And they're, again, they're asking, can we, can we not do this? Can we not name and shame those uh, who are claiming relief? But if you bear in mind that one of the conditions around the Victorian system is that idea of less eligibility, the centre, the, the whole point of the, the poor law system, part of that is to shame you. It's to make you feel ashamed at making a claim for relief. 
the prevailing idea at the time is, is that if you're unemployed, if you're having to make these claims for relief, then it's you, there's something wrong with you. And therefore, it is right to shame you. It is right to make you feel uh, in, this particular, in this particular way. I could have put many, many more letters in like that, talking about the things that people are scared of, that they're, that they're fearing, that they're worried about. I'm not going to show any more. What, what, I, what I thought would be quite useful to do, though, is to say, well, well, when does that begin to change? And it begins to change really quite late in the Victorian period. It begins to change in the 1890s. And it's really the, the democratisation of the system that changes it. In 1894, that's when it changes, and that's when ordinary people can vote for the guardians who's going to represent them. But really, from 1834 through to the 1890s, my reading of the evidence is that it's pretty grinding, and that the Victorian poor law deserves the reputation um, that it has. What happens then to these buildings at the end? Where you know, kind of, where are they now? In 1948, a lot of these workhouse buildings that struck such fear into people um, were handed over to the National Health Service, and many of them formed the basis of uh, local and regional hospitals. So. Not too far from Kew, uh, we've got the West Middlesex Hospital, and that started life as the Brentford Union Workhouse. And some of the workhouse buildings are still there. And I remember on numerous occasions giving talks to family history societies and local history societies, where I, I, kind of this comes up in the conversation, uh, and people say, "Yes, that's right," because my grandmother, she wouldn't like, she didn't like going to the hospital because she always associated that with the workhouse, or someone who's a retired nurse will say, yes, I remember patients, they didn't like coming to see me there in that particular part of the hospital because that was part of the, the workhouse buildings. So the, the psyche, if you like, the way people felt, which is where I wanted to, to start in, in, in much of this talk, it really had such an effect that even now, kind of 170, 180 years later, it can have a real effect on people when they go past some of these buildings. Um, when I first moved to London many years ago now, I worked at Ealing Hospital in West London and uh, a, a lady was brought in, an elderly lady was brought in who'd had a, a fall and she was very agitated and she wouldn't kind of settle. And um, she was on one of the, the wards in the hospital and the nursing staff said to her, you know, what's, what's wrong, are, are you okay? And she says, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be in the workhouse. And the hospital was built on the site of the old Pauper Lunatic Asylum. And this was the 1990s. But for this individual, that connection of shame and that fear of being in this particular area, even though this was a kind of a 1970s built hospital, a tower hospital, quite a new building at the time, but her association with this is of somewhere they, they really don't want to be. This was, this was the old workhouse site and not somewhere they wanted to be. Um, this is the, the final slide. Um, and then I'm going to 
attempt to, to answer some of the questions that have been flooding in. Um, because this slide really tells you where the records are. I think the history of welfare is quite an amazing part of, of our history. People fought for it. People really put themselves out to talk about what it is they felt the welfare system of the time should give you. And we live in, a, in, in an era where we talk about a welfare state. The kind of state that I've been talking about isn't a welfare state. There is a welfare aspect and it is the welfare system of the 1830s, 1840s, 1850s and 1860s really that I've, I've touched upon. But it's not a welfare state. The records are divided between the National Archives, which holds the records of the Poor Law Commission, the Poor Law Board and the Local Government Board, and their correspondence is what we've been looking at today. So all of the letters that I've showed you, they've come from the, the National Collection. The individual Poor Law Union Archive, they're held locally. So they're going to be held in county record offices, uh, borough record offices, local studies libraries. So the, there is somewhat of a, something of a division uh, in where the records are held. But it's an absolutely amazing subject to start to unpick. Because if you are looking at this from a, a family history perspective, when people say, you know, my, my great-grandfather was a railwayman or my great-grandfather was a coalman or my great-grandfather was, was in the army, in the main, our ancestors were poor. And therefore, what I've been talking about today, the, the way in which the welfare system worked in the Victorian period, they would have been quite familiar with all of that. They'd be an accident away from having to make a claim. If they reached a certain age and were unable to work, they'd be looking to, to make a claim. It would have been really part of the fabric of the world in which our Victorian ancestors worked. If you're interested in local history, what we're looking at is the growth of local government, the pool or unions, the vestries, these are local government units. And therefore, it's an incredible part of the way in which the state and the locality interacted. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.